0: reading is sad. It's very sad because Job has suffered can't understand why. And in it he has what Emily Dickinson called uh, an element of blank. He, he's just sad. He's not, not sure if his life has meaning. So just listen closely as you hear these words. They are from the Bible and they're profound.
1: Job 7, starting at verse 1. Do not mortals have hard service on earth, Are not their days like those of hired labourers? Like a slave longing for the evening shadows or a hired labourer waiting to be paid? So I have been allotted months of futility and nights of misery have been assigned to me. When I lie down, I think, how long before I get up? The night drags on and I toss and turn until dawn. My body is clothed with worms and scabs. My skin is broken and festering. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and they come to an end without hope. Remember, O God, that my life is but a breath. My eyes will never see happiness again. The eye that now sees me will see me no longer. You will look for me but I will be no more. As a cloud vanishes and is gone, so one who goes down to the grave does not return. He will never come to his house again. His place will know him no more. Therefore, I will not keep silent. I will speak out in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I the sea or the monster of the deep that you put me under guard? When I think my bed will comfort me and my couch will ease my complaint, even then you frighten me with dreams and terrify me with visions. So that I prefer strangling and death rather than this body of mine. I despise my life. I would not live forever. Let me alone, my days have no meaning. Our New Testament uh, passage is from the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15, starting at verse 20, going to 34. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day, yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrects good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. This is the word of the Lord
0: have some good stuff today but it does require some um, work so uh, you can follow an outline here if you're taking notes and we'll see how we go shall we pray father fill us with all joy and hope in believing by the power of your holy spirit touch us now for jesus sake amen so we are in a second week in a new series called alternatives to hope or alternatives to christian hope and their antidotes, the antidotes to the alternatives. Transforming hope has been our theme for 2023, and we've decided to return to it directly uh, before Advent and add something new to it. And the something new is quite simple, namely that the human heart can easily default to a counterfeit hope that is an alternative to Christian hope. And We can do so out of fear or anxiety or loss or just forgetfulness or greed. Our hearts can choose an alternative. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about. You can also choose alternatives that are positive. We'll get to that in a moment. And it has ever been thus, liberated from Egypt and on the edge of the promised land, the Israelites were thrust into the desert. They hated it. And they said to Moses, wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? There's an alternative to the hope offered. And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. So back to Egypt then becomes even today, a metaphor for choosing an alternative hope. Keith Green made a song about it in the 1980s. Our aim in the series is to provide an antidote to the alternative hopes and therefore to point you back towards the promised land to show you Jesus. Now we've had some feedback over the week and the alternatives that we announced last week made some of you think that this was gonna be a mere cerebral exercise, like we were dabbling in philosophy. But if you listen to last week's sermon, you'll see that we're not just trying to play with ideas, we're trying to deal with real life, but it got Emma and Rob and I thinking during the week with some feedback from Jenny Dennis and Dave Irving. Maybe there are more commonly experienced alternatives. So we're thinking about adjusting the whole teaching program to include maybe despair or self-help or anxiety or some positive things too. Why don't you give us some feedback via the Churchill links and let us know how you'd like to fill out the series if we choose to fill it out this way. This week, nihilism. Five points. What is the Christian hope? What is today's alternative? That is nihilism. Why it's it's an attractive alternative, at least to some. Why it is indeed an anti-alternative to Christian hope. And what is its antidote? That's printed in your little news sheet. So firstly, what is Christian hope? Last week I said that Christian hope is scaffolding for the human heart. Let's change the metaphor this week, let's go bolder. Christian hope is the backbone, or maybe even the skeleton in the body that allows you to stand, even in tough times, even in suffering. Last week I gave a definition of Christian hope, I won't read it again, you can listen to the sermon. Suffice to say that our hope is in christ and in his kingdom coming we believe it we believe him as we say from time to time in the nicene creed we acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come this is the hope that we lean into german theologian karl Barth said that the christian hope is the great hope capital g capital h it is universal, comprehensive and satisfying. This great hope is expressed very clearly by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, just read to us a moment ago. From verse 20, he says, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. His resurrection is our hope. He's the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep, which means that his resurrection is my resurrection to come. Why? For It's written into Genesis, for as in Adam all die, so now in Christ all will be made alive. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. But there's an order. In history, verse 23, each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, this is our hope. And at his appearing, the restoration of all things, Then the end will come which is really the beginning when jesus when christ hands over the kingdom to god the father after he has destroyed all dominion authority and power everything toxic everything opposed to god for christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed the last enemy to be destroyed is death this is good news and even jk Rawling knew it was good news, but Karl Barth noted, I love this, hope seizes or rather is seized by, I love these verbs, hope seizes or is rather seized by the promise of the future. To the extent that it is the great hope, the expectation of the eternal life, confident in the coming Jesus Christ as the end and new beginning of all things. Bart then talks about alternatives, convenient for my sermon. He says, he, Christ, he, the content of the promise and the object of hope cannot be replaced by any other, no other alternative. Where there is the great hope, necessarily there are small hopes for the immediate future, jobs, income love, holidays. These hopes have their basis and their strength only in the great hope. And to the extent that they become alternatives is when they become toxic. It's the small hopes that could become potential alternatives to the great hope. You can see that in the back to Egypt scenario. In Exodus, they they say, back in Egypt, back in Egypt, We sat round pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you, Moses, have brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Pots of meat are good. Food to eat is good. These things are not usually rivals in themselves. There's nothing wrong with food and pots of meat, but when they become alternatives to Christian hope, that's when they become toxic. This is true, of course, in Esau, who sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. Today's alternative is nihilism. Now, I am neither a philosopher nor the son of a philosopher, so I'm not pretending to know about the complexities of nihilism. But nihilism, in case you've not heard the word before, it comes from the Latin word, nihil or nihil or nil, meaning nothing. So nihilism is the belief in nothing, that there is no meaning, no purpose in life, no absolute morals, no necessary values embedded into the world, no judgment to come, and no judge. The dastardly Frank Underwood, if you know the TV show House of Cards, for this, it was convenient news as he clawed his way to the top of American politics. He writes, or he said, there is no solace above or below, There is no God. There's only us, small, solitary, striving, battling one another, I pray to myself, for myself. This is, of course, an alternative to Christian hope, namely that there is none. There is no alternative, so you just you, know, you have nothing christians of course say that god has infused this world with meaning that there are absolutes since god has a will and a way that means that we don't make up our own meaning the concept of my truth is i don't even know what it means for a follower of jesus we need to discover the purpose of life in a creator and via A redeemer, Paul writes in Ephesians 5, verse 10, find out what pleases the Lord. This is anathema to a nihilist. You you can't find out what pleases the Lord because there is no Lord, there is no pleasing him, and so there's no finding out what pleases the Lord. Now, for some of us, this idea is new. My introduction to nihilism was through the movie The Big Lebowski. Uli doesn't care about anything. He's a nihilist. Jeff Lebowski... Oh, that must be exhausting. One famous nihilist is the Marquis de Sade, several hundred years ago. In uh, my favourite podcast, you'll hear about this for the next couple of months. I've got the tickets in November. In uh, Tom Holland and, and uh, Dominic Sandbrook's podcast, they did a, a, a podcast on an hour on the Marquis de Sade a couple, last month, and I recommend you listen to it if you can stomach it. The Marquis de Sade was the ultimate nihilist who lived exactly the way he wanted to, in a depraved way. He did what he wanted sexually. The word sadism is named after the Marquis de Sade. And quite frankly, it sounds exhausting. That said, most of us would reject the Marquis de Sade. Uh, There is such a thing, though, as practical nihilism, where you effectively believe in nothing, even as you protest meaning. You believe in close enough to nothing as makes no difference. That said, the most famous name associated with nihilism is Frederick Nietzsche, German philosopher, who advocated a master morality built on the strong as opposed to Christianity, which he despised. He despised Christianity because he believed it advocated a slave morality. He wanted the strong man. The ubermensch, the superior man, the superman. This is the 19th century he's speaking. The one who dominates and achieves great things politically and indeed culturally. He hated Christianity because he thought it justified the slave mind. It justified um, weak people envying strong people or those who suffer and couldn't do anything about it. He said you should be doing something about it. And so care for the poor, a Christian idea, was just a way of justifying weak behaviour. You want to go to the city care lunch next week? Don't do that. Don't do that, Nietzsche would say. What are you doing? You're just justifying weakness. Let them live. Let them choose. I don't believe this for one second. Providence for Nietzsche is just a way of justifying suffering. Oh, God's in the suffering. And waiting for God was a way to stop people from rising above their pain. Nietzsche viewed forgiveness along with pity and compassion as the snivelling vice of the weak and resentful who pass themselves off as lofty and big-hearted. Aren't I good? He wrote that there's no inherent value in being human That's just made up by priests, the control people, the slaves, there's no God. Nietzsche famously said, God is dead, not meaning that he killed God, but rather that God was always a shadow in the caves and we must chase away the shadows in all caves. The soul doesn't matter, only achievement matters, doing. And in that sense, he felt that Christianity inhibited the development of genius He believed in the Ubermensch, the strong man. It's not hard to chart a path from Nietzsche to Adolf Hitler. Some nihilists go, I'm not with Marquis de Sade, I'm not with uh, with, uh, Nietzsche, Uh, but I chart my own hopes, my own meaning. Some do that by service of others, a meaning they create for themselves. Some do it with pleasure, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Others let governments create meaning for them, which is why atheism is so attractive to communist governments. Marx knew that the only way that the socialist paradise could be achieved was for religion to be eradicated. Because for Marx, religion was like drugs, opium. It dulled the pain of the oppressed class, stopping them from rising up against their oppressor, and he wanted them to rise up. Instead, they were saying, God's in the mess, there's a future to come. But for a nihilist, any meaning created has no basis in objectivity. It's just power plays. You should believe what I believe. No, you should believe what I believe. A classic quote from Richard Dawkins in Out of Eden is this, although Dawkins preferred the term atheist since he was more interested in the non-existence of God than some stronger proposals about there being no meaning. However, he writes in a blind, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, in other words, the material world you live in, some people are gonna get hurt, and other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason to it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nihil, 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 nihil. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. So that's all depressing. Welcome to church. (laughs) So it begs the question, why is it attractive? Why do, do some want it? Well, it is attractive to some because it is intellectually honest. If you're an atheist, if you are an atheist, then there can be no absolutes. There just is, not oughts. There can be no absolute meaning. And nihilism is at least honest about this. It's attractive to a Nietzsche because it created a path to strength. And it's attractive to many Australians who want to create their own meaning. They don't want God to say what should or shouldn't happen. They don't want a Bible that bothers them. They don't want a God above you. They don't want... God to judge you. You want to be captain of your own soul and have no constraints except the ones that you place upon yourself. I think most Australians want that, especially sexually. And if that's true, nihilism is your answer, even if it seems a little frightening at first. But few people are intellectually nihilist, like uh, Nietzsche. I listened to a couple of podcasts this week about nihilism, and none of them held their nerve, not one of them, like I was begging for one of them to hold their nerve. They all said, well, you can't know where you're coming from, where you're going, there's just material things, there can't be therefore any inherent meaning, but since we're all here on planet Earth sharing resources, we should make the most of it, and life is precious, Therefore, we should treat it as precious. And I'm like, come on, hold your nerve. Now it's better than saying we should kill and destroy, but I believe it borrows more from the scaffolding of Christianity coming, dripping down through the Western mind than it usually dares to admit, which is a point made by Tom Holland in his famous book, Dominion. You care for the poor, You want them assisted. You want to listen to the oppressed voices. You have a desire to say sorry. You want sexual restraint within marriage. These things, they're not from Nietzsche. They're not from Plato. They're not from Aristotle or the Roman Empire. They come from Jesus Christ. There are some who are drawn to nihilism or drawn to it out of sadness or despair. And so there's a sort of magnetic pull or feel towards nihilistic thinking. It sometimes aligns with a difficult season. Job's an example of that. Job suffered greatly. It should be said that he was not a nihilist, nor was Solomon when he wrote Ecclesiastes. They both believe in God. In fact, their belief in God is partly what provided their frustration. Job was neither a nihilist nor an atheist. But, as Jenny just read to us a moment ago, when sadness was overtaking him, when it was feeling overwhelming, it was very hard for him to assume that there was anything to live for. So Job 7, verse 13, so profound, so worthwhile hearing, especially if you're suffering at the moment, just to know that others who believe in God go through what you go through. So Job writes, when I think my bed will comfort me and my couch will ease my complaint, even there I can't sleep so that I prefer to die rather than this body of mine which frustrates me. I despise my life. I would not live forever. Let me alone, God. My days have no meaning. So it begs the question, is Job an nihilist? No, he's not any more than you or I are when we cry out to God, and lean towards despair. I wonder if this diagram helps a little, although Emma helped me with it this morning. See, Job believes in God, uh, but wonders if there's any meaning in it. He leans in this season of suffering towards despair. He wonders if there's any meaning in it. A nihilist does not believe in God, or personal God, and knows there's no meaning in it now both can lead towards despair when you lose your appetite to fight for meaning when personal circumstances swamp your soul emma pointed out to me that it might mean that somebody who believes in god is in fact a nihilist it's not true at all but they can very easily lean towards despair or feeling like things are very difficult and therefore is there something to live for Feeling this despair does not make you a nihilist, just that no meaning can sit below the surface in our experience from time to time. But Job believes in God, Job faces God. That's the whole point of the book of Job. He doesn't curse God and die, such that the person in the middle here believes in God, perhaps the prayer of that person, the prayer of the one who despairs is very simple, and at Psalm 69, verse 1, in the King James Version, it goes like this. Save me, O God, for the waters are come in unto my soul. Save me, O God, for the waters are come in and unto my soul. I do wonder whether nihilism is the new religion of the West, just below the surface is, Create your own meaning. Is there really any meaning? I meet regularly with a fellow who used to be tick the box saying Anglican until the last few years when that crowd said, be honest, you should tick the none box. And so he now ticks none in the census. He has no faith, but he's intrigued. So he meets me, he buys the beer and he spends hours quizzing me about god about life about jesus about mythos about morality about meaning and that's because the conversation sort of goes one way that's because if you put your head under the bonnet of christianity there's a lot going on under there it's a pretty big engine and there's lots of pistons moving through history and theology and experience and art But when we get to talking about his beliefs, the conversation is very brief. It's like there are none or rather they're fairly flimsy. I mean, they're good things. He says, I just just believe in being good to people. And then he says, "Um, you know, you should do unto others what they would have do unto you. And I'm like, that's Jesus, that's Jesus. (laughs) He doesn't know it. Head down, earn some money, give to charity from time to time, try to raise your kids as best you can. When I ask him what he teaches his daughter, he doesn't really have an answer. That is, if you put your head under the bonnet of no religion, you may well get a good life. Very often you'll get a good life, but there isn't really an engine to speak of or fuel or a chassis, really. Often what is there is a residual Christian story dripping through Western history, and often with some old gospel stories like the Good Samaritan. Everyone loves the Good Samaritan. But I take it that nature abhors a vacuum, especially a meaning vacuum in the human psyche or soul. And it's hard for me not to believe that the new righteousness of the last 10 to 15 years often disparaged as woke, is an attempt to scramble for meaning when there has been none. Why then is it an anti-alternative? Well, because God has infused this life with meaning, with a full embodied yes to living now and life later, not dying now and death later. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Because Christ has been raised and since I will be raised with him, since death cannot harm me since i do not merely have what he calls human hopes but rather a divine one therefore not flimsy hopes or small hopes but rather a substantial hope a great hope i can endure all things that's why he says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 30 as for us why do we endanger ourselves every hour i face death every day yes as surely as i boast about you in christ jesus our lord If I fought wild beasts at Ephesus, you know, thrown to the lions, or some hardship, if I fought wild beasts at Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But if there is a God, then finding his will is the most important human quest there is. There can't be another more important one. By definition, if God really has raised Jesus from the dead, then there is a Messiah who will judge the world. And if there's a future for me and for the world that exists beyond what we see here, taste and touch and smell, then you can live now in confidence. You can radically love and live and serve because God sees What then is the antidote to this alternative? An antidote is a medicine taken to counteract a poison. And nihilism is a poison, unlike optimism that I spoke about last week. One of the reasons it's a poison is that there is no necessary next path, no obvious way forward. So I want you to imagine three people. They recognize themselves as being nihilistic even if they rarely use the phrase. One says, there is nothing, but I'm going to do my best. I'll study hard, agitate for change, strive for what I think will make the world a better place. The other says, I agree, there is nothing, but I'm going to go and please myself, eat, drink, and be merry. The third says, I agree, there is nothing, So let's take Western Europe, set up some gulags, have lesser races, and say, Harl Hitler. Now, each of those three people have very different reasons for choosing what they do, and the argument will be strong between them. I, myself, would prefer someone to be number one than number two, and I would prefer someone to be number two than number three. The problem is, they are all legitimate paths if there is nothing. They are all human hopes. There is no necessary path to a better life. And so the antidote to nothing is to find the something that God is offering. The antidote is the gospel of hope. It is indeed to come to your senses. That's why Paul writes in verse 33, don't be misled. Bad company, corrupts good character. Hang up with the Marquis de Sade and you're going to have problems. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning for there are some who are ignorant of God and I say this to your shame. Like last week, the antidote is an abiding faith in God over a lifetime. A joyful one. So I'll leave it with a German theologian its German theologian and philosopher night, Jürgen Moltmann wrote this, the resurrection hope, this great hope, makes people ready to live their lives in love wholly and to say a full and entire yes to a life that indeed leads to death. It does not withdraw the human soul from bodily sensory life, rather it ensouls this life with unending joy. Let me pray. Father, we here do not believe in nothing, we believe in something, or rather we believe in someone. We believe in Jesus Christ and the hope that he offers and the path he created when he lived the life we should have lived and died the death that we deserved and rose again to be our hope, And so we lean into that hope. We yearn for that hope. We choose it tonight. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.